Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to another episode of The Stacks. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today it's The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors. We have as our guest, debut author, Brian Washington. Brian's brand new book, Lot, has been a favorite 2019 read for me, so I'm very excited to get to share it with all of you. Before we do, I just wanted to remind you to check out our Patreon page, which supports the work we do on this show. You contribute monthly, and it can be as little as a dollar a month, and that helps the stacks to quite literally exist in the world. In exchange for your generosity, you can be part of our virtual book club, have priority on our new segment, Ask the Stacks, and a lot more. So go to patreon.com slash the stacks to check it out. If you prefer one-time contributions, you can also check out paypal.me slash the stacks pod. If you like this show, would you take a moment to give us a rating and a review? It's super simple and it helps us to reach new audiences. Okay, now it's time to talk with Brian Washington, author of Lot, which is a short story cycle. Lot is the kind of collection you can't really define, but I'm going to try anyways. It centers the city of Houston and looks at the themes of love and loss, sexuality, coming of age, and a whole lot more. I promise you, Brian does a way better job explaining the book, so I'm just going to let him do that. Here's my conversation with Brian Washington. All right, Brian, well, welcome to the stacks. I just want to start here. In 30 seconds or less-ish, can you just tell us about Lot? Yeah. What I've been describing it as is a collection of short stories that's set in Houston or a story cycle that's set in Houston about folks that are sort of falling in love and coming together with one another and falling apart. And there are a handful of ghost stories and a handful of queer coming-of-age narratives, the sorts that I'd sort of wanted to see. And I hadn't seen the way that... I wanted to see them. So it was really uh, it was really exciting to have the opportunity to write them and to work with the folks that I did to write them. That's so awesome. Um, I haven't said this yet, but I loved your book. I thought oh, it was thanks. amazing. I have not I had not really been exposed to short stories until last year. And mm-hmm. I kind of thought like, I don't know, I don't really like short stories that much. And then I read your book and I was like, whoa you can do that with short stories. Like you can make them be connected and not connected. And like, it was really well done how you brought the world of Houston as like the base of your story. And so everybody felt connected. There felt like there was common ground. And I really liked that. And I guess my question is, how did you decide 
to make your stories so collected in actual interaction between the stories versus kind of talking about like a theme or an idea throughout? Yeah, I think, well, that's very generous of you to say, but I also (laughs) think that I'm really drawn to the locality of a text, right? Like the place in a narrative or a story is something that's really important to me because I think it can tell the reader so much about the conflicts that the characters are engaging in, Mm -hmm. the different obstacles that they'll have to sort of parse through in order to get the things that they want. And when I'd originally started writing a lot, my plan was to have a collection that had a story taking place in each of Houston's hubs, right? Like, so maybe 10 or 11, 12 stories in a different part of the city. And the through line would be the fact that they're all in the greater Houston area. But that didn't work out because I was paying more attention, I think, to getting everything right from like a critical apparatus or like a geographical apparatus instead of the story itself, right? And the connections between the characters. So once I brought the planning down to the character level, which is really where it should have been the entire time, I was able to see their conflicts. And from their conflicts, that's sort of where the world was born, right? Because if I knew why they were the way that they were, I could start thinking about how the setting had impacted their decisions, right? Or how it contorted what they were able to achieve or what they weren't able to achieve. And that sort of allowed me to build a little bit of a fuller world. And it was uh, actually trying to make Houston singular for each of the characters was a lot less stressful after I just sort of realized that each Houston is very specific to each of the characters in lieu of just like a sort of like total Houston or comprehensive Houston, which I don't know exists really. Right. Like any city, it's like... Exactly. It's massive. So how could it be the same for everybody? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So on that, kind of on that same note, Houston is obviously like a huge character in your book, but also, you know, your book is about blackness and brownness and queerness and being young and coming of age. And it's also about, you know, drugs and sex and all this stuff. And it's like kind of about everything. And it can't really be defined as a book about any of those one things. So mm, how do I want to ask you this? Because your book is about so many things and it can't be defined by any really one thing, what inspired you to write a book like that? I feel like so often books are about like right now, it's like this is a this is a book that I could tell you what it is about in one sentence. And your mm-hmm. book really is not that. And you kind of mentioned that you were writing like maybe the queer coming of age story that you had wanted to see or like maybe a depiction of Houston that you had wanted to see. Did it ever start out as like, I'm going to write this one book and then I'm going to write a book about Houston and then I'm going to write a book about a restaurant? Or was it always like these things all need to be together kind of like mixing? Yeah, that's sort of an, that's a really interesting question. I guess one way that I was looking at it is, so it's a cohesive collection now, right? And all the stories are taken together, but I'd originally written the first few as their own independent entities, right? So Mm. Navigation, let's say, which is a story in the collection. That was just navigation by itself, not a part of Lot, right? And then also a story like Bayou, let's say, that was just Bayou by itself, um, not a part of Lot. So the original iterations for those stories were very different than they are in the collection because Mm. they just existed independently of one another. But once I had more stories and it became apparent that it was something that would be tied together, that's when my editor and I and my agent and I sort of started working together to tighten those threads between those stories. So even though the details and the components of each story might vary wildly, right? Like one might be a sort of surreal suburban tale, whereas another might be a more 
a more linear love story and it might be confusing to see both of those narratives in the same place the challenge that we had was connecting them right and because i think it is interesting when disparate narratives or what me as a writer or readers might think of as being traditionally disparate narratives are brought together in one place i think that's when you have the chance to I don't want to say make something new, but at least make something interesting. And right. if your goal is not to bore the reader, I think that's one way to do it. Yeah. And you also made me want to go to Houston. I've never been. And now I was like, I want to go. And then also following you on Instagram and seeing all the food that you eat. I was like, I need yeah. to go to Houston and eat with Brian because he clearly knows everywhere to go. No, and, no, not everywhere. <laughs> well, you. I feel like if I went for a weekend, I'd be happy. Yeah, you'd have a good time. Yeah, it'd be fun. <laughs> um, this is like one of my favorite questions, but I'm super excited to ask you, which is, do you have any reading or writing snacks or beverages? Do I have I, all of them? Just everything you can. So nothing think. Well, specific. You're not like well, when I write, I need blah. No, I'm not very picky. I'm <laughs> I'm pretty big on milk tea. So if I can snag a milk tea before I start writing, that's ideal. But I I don't have. Uh, I, I guess the most important thing, insofar as I have anything that I need to do for a routine, is writing early. So like if I'm if I'm writing generative material, then I'm up pretty early. I'm up at like 5.30 or 6 because I haven't really had time to process everything else that's going on in the day, right? So right. I'm relatively fresh when I'm coming to the page and I can work for about an hour and a half, two hours. And after that, I'm not great with generating new stuff, but I can edit uh, most any time of the day because it's just different energies on my own. Yeah. And where do you do your writing? Do you do it at home or do you go somewhere or special spot or anything? Usually I do some of it at home. I'll do some of it, you know, at a coffee shop that's like right around the way from me. When I'm doing generative stuff or I'm writing new stuff, it helps to be in a place that's relatively familiar, but I can edit really just about anywhere. I can do it on my phone if I'm on um, you know, if I'm driving some, not driving, but if I'm in a ride chair or something, <laughs> or if I'm catching a ride from someone, I mean, if I'm in a restaurant, whatever. So editing is a lot less of a hassle as far as like coordinating how things are going to work out. Like you're less picky about that. Exactly. Yeah. And you're pretty young. You're a young writer. Yeah, pretty young. You're a young guy. I mean, as far as writers go, too, you know. Yeah, as far as writers. Definitely. Well, I feel like the, you feel like the internet's changing uh, so much of it's that. Though. True. A lot of young folks are doing cool stuff. Well, yes. I mean, that's always true. There's always young people doing cool stuff. But, you yeah. know, I mean, you're, you're rel- you're, this is your debut. So your mm-hmm. first published book, which is exciting. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What has your journey to becoming a writer been? Like, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? When did you know you wanted to write short stories or books? Like, how did you discover that part of you? I took a class with Matt Johnson in undergrad, and that was really the first time that I conceived of writing as a path that was viable to me. It really wasn't something that I grew up wanting to do. I wasn't like the strongest or like the most avid reader when I was growing up. But after, you know, he'd exposed our class to so many different texts that I just hadn't been aware of, like it just wasn't a part of my life. And I didn't know about the formal variations that a story can have, right? Like I hadn't come into contact with a lot of, I suppose, like the establishment publications or like the uh, the canonical publications and, and venues and pieces and narratives. Like they just weren't a part of my life. So once I'd been introduced to them, it was like opening a bunch of windows, you know? Um, it was a number, it was re- really edifying to, to study with Matt. And from there... 
I wrote casually, I guess. And then I started writing here and there for the internet. Like I had some chances uh, to work with uh, folks at the all for a bit. And I had the chance to work with Nicole Chong over at Catapult mm. writing at both of those. But yeah, yeah. I saw that you had her on. She was on. Ago. Yeah. She's yeah, lovely. Yeah. No, she's awesome. Yeah, She's, she's so smart. And I thought I just, I love, I fell in love with her. Yeah. yeah she's great. Yeah. No, Nicole's <laughs> the best. And it, it was really great to work with her and to learn from her and to work and learn with some of the other other editors that I've been working with just around the internet. And in the meantime, I was working on fiction that I really didn't think anything would come up. But at some point, I had enough short stories that a collection made sense, right? It wasn't as big of a, of a question mark on my end, like, oh, what do I do with all of them? I'll put them together and try and form a sort of collection. And I suppose Houston was the cohesive thread between each of them. So it was, I guess, like the next logical step on my end was to mm. f- see if I could find a way to tie those together. Are you born and raised in Houston? Mm-mm. I was born in Kentucky and then I moved to Houston when I was very young. I was okay. like two or three. Yeah. So you weren't born there, but you grew up. That's your. That's mm-hmm. been your home base forever, pretty Definitely. much. Definitely. All right. All right. So when you make a short story collection and you have these stories and you start in different places and like you said, some of them were their own things first before you knew that it was all going to be together. Where, how do you put it together? How do you decide the order? How do you decide what you're titling the stories? How do you Mm. decide which ones I'm assuming there maybe were some that didn't make the cut? Like how do you actually bring it all together? And I mean that more literally than like, theoretically. I mean, like, literally, how did you say this one's in lots in, you know, John, John is out. Right. I'm assuming was the title of one that you got rid of. (laughs) Right. right. No, that would make, no, no, that'd be a good title. Um, That's, uh, that's a really good question. I think it's like a structural question on my end, right? I'm really big on watching movies uh, as far as like the, the watching films has like been really helpful for me as far as just getting a more expansive grasp of how words on the page can work for me specifically right and I don't really do it in a way that I think is critical at all like I'm just sort of like sitting there and just sort of taking it in but for a lot specifically half of the stories are interconnected narratives and half of the stories aren't connected so just from a structural standpoint it just made sense to have every other story take place in that recurring timeline because that established a pattern for the reader. Like after one piece, they knew that maybe we'd jump around the city. And after that piece where we jumped around the city, we'd go back to our central location and then we jump around and we go back to our central location and sort of creating that rhythm for the reader makes it a bit easier to process all of the conflicts, I suppose, that are going on the page, right? It's less of, it's less work for the reader because once that rhythm or that pattern is established, and I think I'm really big on situating the prose in such a way that it's less work for the reader so that I think that's when you can really imbue like the text with weight and the weight can take effect when a reader isn't confused about where they are as far as like place, time, or chronology are concerned. So trying to find a way to structure the stories where there was ease for the reader was really important to me. And when it came to deciding what went into the actual collection, I was really, I I have a friend, I think I've said this before, but I have a friend who says that I only ever write like failed love stories or love stories where people (laughs) fall in love at like the exact wrong time. So I think the overwhelming majority of the stories sort of fit that trope. And 
as far as titles are concerned, like I'm deeply interested in street names. I'm deeply interested in neighborhoods and the ways in which street names and the names of neighborhoods and the names of hubs or restaurants or places that people go on their daily revolutions can take a dramatically different connotation depending on who is saying it and also when the same person is saying it at different times, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a lovely experience on Elgin, let's say, which is a street in uh, Houston, until you have a very negative experience, your association with that street is going to take on a completely different pallor, completely different color. That's like super interesting to me. Like right. street names are poetry, right? right? And I thought it would be interesting to sort of attach narratives to these street names in the same way that if someone were to say like Main Street somewhere, like most people can think of a story about Main Street because Main Street has so many different narratives attached to it. Same thing for like uh, Broadway, you know, like mm-hmm. people associate Broadway with something because there are narratives that are attached to it. So taking a street that, I had thought was important or a street that means a lot to me or a part of town that means a lot to me and attaching a narrative to it was something that I thought could be interesting to play with and maybe interesting for the reader. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished, and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy 
Happy price, price line. How about characters' names? How do you name your character? That's a good question. I don't know if I have a good answer. It's usually the first name that comes to me is the character's name. You know, that's a great answer. Uh, 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 I feel like it should be like more. No, I I ask almost everyone who writes fiction that, and it's Mm. almost always like I don't know, like it just felt right, or you know, some people say they put placeholders in until they can figure it out. Mm. Um, Actually, the person who told me about your book was Asia Gable when she was on the show. Yeah, Yeah, she's she's amazing. She mentioned. She had read Wah as a short story in The New Yorker. Yeah. Um, and she was like, that's the book I'm most looking forward to. Like, I hadn't heard of it yet, and she put it on my radar. But what she said in her book is she put a placeholder in for one of her characters, and then that ended up just being the name. She was like, I couldn't change it. Like, I I grew it. She grew attached to it. And I think that's not, that's not too far from my standpoint, because I'll just, you know, I'll have a name there. But if I don't change it, by the time I go back, the story's already in place and I've attached like however much significance to that character's name and I've developed the relationship with them on the page. Right. So actually changing it is more of an effort than just sort of leaving it there and hoping for totally. the best for the most part. Yeah. Totally. Abby, we talked about that you love food, but I love food too. And so that's why I feel like I we should be best friends. But <laughs> did you grow up in a restaurant? No, no, I didn't. Um, But an interesting thing about Houston is that I think it's a global food city and I think more people are starting to realize that. Mm. So you're always in close proximity to a number of different cuisines, a number of different folks that are trying to, you know, make a way of life through the restaurant scene, through the dining scene, irrespective of whether that means they're working in the front of the house or the back of the house or doing both Mm -hmm. or somewhere in between. So I was always in close proximity to those spaces. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Did you ever have another title for the book or did you always know Lot was going to be the title story? You know, I didn't have a title and then I thought Lot should be the title and that just became the title. I think in the same way that, you know, character names, uh, they just sort of were attached and they became the thing. But I'm also generally drawn to shorter titles in my work in particular. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't, I didn't have a huge reason to change it. Mm-hmm. And I sort of became pretty enamored with it after a while, just the idea of, of like someone having this sort of lot in life and uh, a physical lot, right? Like a physical property. And because a handful of the narratives or I suppose most of the narratives have the overarching shadow of gentrification in the background and the ways in which a neighborhood could change, right. both of those sort of themes, I guess, that you can find in the word became pretty central to what the collection became. So the title made a little bit more sense for me after I connected those two. Yeah, that's awesome. What in this book or what in the writing of this book came easily for you and what stuff was harder? Mm. So what was really hard, the third person is just like the devil's work to me. Like, it's, I don't fucking understand it. Like, it's really hard for me because I think it's too much power. Right. So every narrative that took place in the third person was just like the absolute worst to write. Like I just hated the experience and it took entirely too long. So that was very difficult, but the conversations between characters were natural insofar as anything in the process is natural Mm -hmm. for me. I don't mind writing dialogue. I think that it's something that, you know, if I have a strength in writing, I think I'm pretty comfortable writing dialogue. Um, and I guess when I say I'm comfortable, I mean, I'm comfortable putting the words on the page initially, actually editing it and finding the rhythm in those conversations. And then those exchanges can be really difficult and it can take a very long time to sort of decide um, not only who's saying what, but how they're saying it, who's repeating what, 
when repetition matters, who's going to be funny, why they're being funny, how it's going to affect everyone else who's having the conversation. All those things are really important to me. And simultaneously, there's a certain rhythm that I'm trying to have in each of the conversations. So trying to align everyone's speech text in such a way that it's not a hassle for the reader, but there's also room for play. So that's really interesting to me. Like conversations are super interesting to me. And those were definitely some of the less stressful moments in writing the book overall, each of the stories in particular. Yeah. Do you find joy in writing? Yeah. It's interesting. Why do you say joy and not uh, fun? It's just, it's super interesting. I think that, I mean, personally, I think that fun is kind of like, it's like nice. It's like not a real word to me, but I feel like joy doesn't necessarily mean like ease or comfort, but it means like a fulfillment in a way. And also, also like that it's enjoyable. I also just love the word joy. It's my favorite word. My doctor's name is joy. And Uh when I found that out, I was like, okay, we can be friends. (laughs) Like I was like, I just love the word and I love the feeling of joy. And so to me, I don't know. That's just no, that's so, like. no, that's so brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, because I think of that often, like, like whether um, I don't know that I think that writing can be fun. Most of the time, I don't think that it is fun, but I do derive joy from it. I think that if you don't derive joy from it, it's like, why do it? You know, right? It's, 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 it is work. And if you're not getting what you want out of it, then, then why do it? But yeah, I think that trying to tell the stories that I would like to see is a joyful process, right? The entirety of the process is joyful, even if the individual moments inside of them aren't necessarily comfortable or fun at any given point in time. But actually seeing them, even if the joy is like fleeting, like if it's just like the scene, like, wow, like I did that thing and then moving on to whatever else, it is, I think, something that makes it worth it. What is it yeah, totally. What was it like when you first saw like the finished copy of your book? It was pretty cool. I mean, it was, uh, I saw the galleys first, so okay. that was nice. But the galley process wasn't some, was something that, you know, I was aware of, but something that I hadn't really thought of in like the context of me, myself, like receiving my own galleys. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that was a heavier moment for me than actually seeing the final copy okay. of the book, like just seeing everything bound together and Riverhead does such a beautiful job with their layouts and their designs. So seeing, oh, so all, beautiful. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the idea of, or knowing that so many people had had a hand in putting everything together, I feel like that was probably that, that left a bigger impression on me, just like knowing how much work went into it from so many different corners than just like my words on the page. Like that was pretty cool. The seeing the buy-in from everyone else for these particular stories. And what did you do on publication day? I was on the Riverhead Instagram story. So I did that for most of, yeah, I did that for most of the day and I was just kind of hanging out. I really didn't do anything like super remarkable. I had the day off from work. So I, you know, I just like eating around town and Mm -hmm. we had the launch for the book at the end of publication day at a Brazos bookstore, which is um, one of Houston's indie bookstores. So it was really nice. It was a good day. And what do you do for your other work? I teach ESL. Do you? Yeah. Holy shit, that's awesome. Yeah, I teach kiddos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. It's a cool job. I mean, and it's a, well, I mean, the kids are cool and it's nice to see their growth and their development and their comfort with the language as time passes. It's something that's really, it's like a tangible progression too. So it's really cool to see. Are you teaching in high school or little kids or? It's mostly junior high age kids. Are they going to read your book? 
I, I <laughs> that's a good question. Do if they know it, about your book? They, I don't know. I think that, well, I mean, the kid, they're, they're kids. I mean, they're kids. So like they're very, they're, you know, they might be vaguely aware that if I'm not okay. there, that like I might be on tour or something. I think their okay. parents are aware because a handful of them have like mentioned it to me. And I'm just like, oh yeah, that's something I do. But so yeah, cool. it's a, it's a lot of fun. That's such an awesome like day job. I guess, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I don't know. Do you think of that as your day job or do you think of writing as your day job? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I'd sooner, if I were in Houston, I would sooner tell someone that I teach than that I write. And it's, I mean, it's always interesting to me what other people, what other people give as an answer to that, right? Like other writers that I know, whether they immediately assume the identity of like, I am a writer when, you know, the conversation inevitably comes to like, what do you do? Or whether they'll turn to, you know, what they might think of as like their regular gig or like their side right. gig that they list instead of saying that they're a writer. So I wonder if I'll reach a point where I just say, oh, you know, I write or like I have books out. I don't think that I'm there yet, but it also just depends on who I'm talking to and where I'm talking to them. If I'm at like a book event for someone right, like course. a friend or say, then I would probably say, oh, you know, I wrote a book. But even then, I don't think that I would, you know, jump into, oh, yeah, I wrote a lot, you know, interconnected stories that you used to It'll, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe I, I can fucking change my mind in like, you know, two years. We'll see. But yeah. no, at the moment I just say that, oh, you know, I teach. And then if they ask follow-up questions, then it'll, it might come up. And how long have you been teaching? Uh, this will be my fourth year. Wow. This will be my fourth year doing it. Yeah. That's yeah, so, so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a fun job though. I mean, and it's, uh, yeah, you know, it's a fun job. I mean, and it's, uh, there's like a tangible change and right. I like seeing that, right. Whereas like with writing on my end, like it can just take so long for anything to develop or, you know, lot took like two years, right. So that was two years. It's a very long time without seeing anything. So actually having, another gig or other gigs where, you know, you do see some sort of movement or some, some sort of growth was really helpful. It was really good. That's so cool. And do you speak Spanish? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. I understand pretty fluently. My speaking Are, could be a lot better. Okay. Are your students all Spanish speaking or do any of them speak? Other? No. no, because of, uh, I don't know, because Houston has just so many different communities. Right. Quite a few of them are Latinx students. Like we have quite a few Mexican and Mexican American students, quite a few Venezuelan and Venezuelan American students. But we also have a good number of Vietnamese students and Filipino mm. students. We have a handful of Korean students. Um, so there, there's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty eclectic group, a pretty diverse group. Um, and they're also, the, which makes it fun uh, to right. see like, the way that they approach English, like in such a malleable form in each of their own ways um, and what they bring from, you know, their languages or the languages that they grew up around to the language that they're trying to learn. And they, it's unique for each of them. So it's pretty cool. Wow. I'm just, I know that we're supposed to be talking about your book and stuff, but now I'm like, <laughs> all I want to talk about is uh, teacher. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's a fun I, gig. It's cool. Yeah, that's so cool. Okay, let's go a little bit back to your book. What sort of stuff, I know you said you're really inspired by film. So what sort mm. of stuff were you watching or reading? Um, I saw there was an article where you talked about what you were listening to, but mm. those things kind of while you were writing a lot, like what, have, what things were inspiring, exciting, confusing, you know, comforting to you through the process? Mm. So some films that I was watching included uh, Moonlight, you know, Barry mm. Jenkins' film. Um, there's a film called Spa Night by Andrew Ahn that I really enjoyed. 
Um, there's a film called Edward by, oh, sorry, it's called uh, Yee Yee by Edward Yang that I, you know, I watch the hell out of. Like, I watch it very, very often. I feel like those three films, I, you know, I found myself, like, coming back to pretty frequently just because of the way that they handled pacing and the way that they handled structure and the way that they handled character development. Um, and some books that I was reading or some books that I used as a frame for a lot were, uh, you know, The House on Mango Street by uh, Sandra Cisneros and also uh, Woman Hollering Creek. Both of those are really important. Um, there's a book called Vida by Patricia Engels that was really important. There's a book uh, called A Good Fall by Ha Jen that was really important. But I think that what was probably the most seminal work in relation to Lot, just like as far as one that I kept coming back to, it was a book called American Son by a guy named Brian Askell and Rowley. And it was one of the first story cycles that I'd come into contact with, when it, with where each of the narratives could be approached independently from one another. And they were singular in and of themselves, but taken together, it gave a pretty comprehensive look at that character's world and the way in which he grew or didn't grow as a person and the way in which his family grew or didn't grow around him and how they were just sort of reacting to the environment that they were living in. It was a city in California. And that book meant a lot to me. It was really cool. And it was really cool to see how like Rolly managed weight throughout the text and the way that when he distributed it, why he distributed it, how he worked with humor, um, how he worked with some of the most sobering moments. And it was, I don't know, it was like really illuminating to see that. It was super cool. Wow. That sounds like something that would be a good answer for my next question, which is if someone read Lot and they loved it, what is something that you might point them to maybe in conversation with, similar feeling? What would you recommend for someone who liked your book? Mm, I would recommend American Sun by Brian Eskill and Rowley. I'd recommend The Leavers by Lisa Ko. Mm-hmm. I don't know how close they are in terms of like content, but sure. that is definitely a text that I think is just so great and it's just so lovely. I would also recommend Jamel Brinkley's book, A Lucky Man. Mm. It's really rad. And the way that his characters are negotiating their perceived selves with who they're perceived to be by other people and balancing both of those personas with how they would like to see themselves in the future, having all of those forces working together in each of his stories, like it's really masterful what he does. It's like super, I don't know. It's like, it's real. there are a lot of like intangible things that he does like really well. And he just does them really precisely in every story. And it's really both, all three of those books, I think folks might enjoy if they were looking for something after a while. Okay. That's dope. Um, all right. What about this? Your book's out, been out in the world for a little bit now, not too long. It's pretty new. Have you heard from any people that like, made you excited like that sent you a message or you found out you know like tom cruise has read my book or like anything Uh, like that not tom cruise uh tom cruise (laughs) hasn't reached out um you know i'm always i'm still in this the position and i think i might always be in the position where i'm a little shocked when anyone is like excited about something that i did but seeing so many folks from houston reach out because quite a few have reached out and just say that, wow, like this is a text that is of the city in a way that I hadn't seen before that I hadn't seen articulated before was really surprising to me because it just wasn't something that I expected. Although my, I myself haven't seen too many contemporary narratives set in Houston, but something that's really interesting about the city is the way that the residents rally around 
damn near anything that's right. born of the city, right? Mm-hmm. Like folks who didn't watch sports, like once the Astros went as far as yes. they did, all of a sudden, you know, they were wearing the cap and the same thing right. for the Texans, same things for, you know, the University of Houston's uh, college basketball team right now. Right. Uh, whenever, you know, the Noel sisters drop something, like it's like mm-hmm. Houston forever all of a sudden, right. which is, and it's really cool to have that in a city. It definitely, and especially one that, you know, may not have as much space in the national narrative as it probably should. So that was, uh, seeing that has been really cool. And it was definitely unexpected. There's so many awesome writers in in Houston or from Houston or who spent time writing in Houston just right now. I mean, Asia is one of those people. Alexander Chi's there, right? Um, She's in Houston? I thought he was in Houston. Oh, I think he might. I thought he was teaching university she, on the East Coast. Oh, maybe. I think that Asia maybe studied with him in Houston because she got her PhD there and he was one of her advisors. Oh, I didn't know he was U of A. I don't know. Okay. Maybe. I thought he was. I might have made that up. But I know Lacey Johnson is there who's like one <laughs> yeah, of my Yeah, yeah, she's faves. never raised. Yeah, yeah, and she's then, and Michael, I don't know how to say his last name, Arsenault? Is that how you say it? Marco Arsenault, yeah, he's from, uh, he's he's from, from Houston. 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 Yeah, so yeah. I, like, I feel like right now there's like a very Houston-y writing thing going on, which I'm very into. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, you got a lot of folks that are doing really great work out there. And the poetry scene is like really good too. I mean, folks is like Annalisa Santello or like J. Stanislaw Lopez. And it's... I, it's really cool to see. And I imagine the same thing is true of any city or any place right. um, that you've spent a significant amount of time in to see folks who've come up in the area get recognition for the things that they're doing because they're just like just doing such great work, even though they've been doing it for a very long time to finally see other people notice is really it's a good feeling. Right. That's so awesome. Okay. Here's my last question for you. And you can honestly tell me right now when I ask it, you can be like, fuck you, leave me alone. So you're totally allowed to, because <laughs> okay, I don't, we'll this might be offensive. <laughs> okay. We'll Do see. you know what's next for your writing? I know, I know your book just came out, oh, so don't no. get me. People some really people, say fuck you. When, no, when but you, some when people are that. like, I don't know. Like they kind of like roll their eyes. And so if you don't uh, know, that's fine too. I just, I don't know. I feel like it can be a little pushy. Like your book yeah, just came out. I don't think it'll be, I don't think it's pushy. I mean, but maybe well, not literally maybe what's next. Yeah. Maybe like what you hope to put out in the world soon. Not uh, necessarily like I'm writing this. Just kind yeah. of like, where do you see yourself going? Yeah, well, for, for better or worse, I have a pretty clean answer. For the past year and a half-ish to two years, I was working on a novel and Riverhead bought it, I think, three <gasps> weeks ago. My editor is looking at it right now. So that'll be like the next thing. Yes. Um, so we'll start working on edits for it in a few months probably, yeah. Whoa, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is exciting. It was a trickier story. And it's I I think that I'm drawn to a lot of the same themes and obsessions, but the energy is definitely significantly different. So it'll be interesting to see how it all comes together. But my editor, like Laura over at Riverhead, like she's the best. So it'll be really cool to get to work with her on it and see what we can come up with. That is so fantastic. We can't wait. We'll have you back. We'll talk about it. Yeah, thank you. However long it is. Of course. Oh, my God. Thank you for taking the time. As soon as I read your book, I was like, I have to get this person on my show. (laughs) Thank you. It means a lot. Thank you. Well, is there anything else that you want to say before we sign off? Uh, (laughs) Oh, if you're ever in Houston, if you ever pass through Houston and you want a really good sandwich, you should go to Cali Sandwich on Anita Street. They have some of the best Vietnamese food in the city. Is that where your banh mi was from that you posted about That is usually where I'm at. Yeah, that's that's like the place that I go. Yeah. I got to make a trip to Houston just to come eat with you. I'm literally going to come and be like, 
Brian, I'm here. Take me to food. And then I'm going to call Lacey and be like, Lacey, I'm here. Let's like talk about the world. (laughs) (laughs) So between the two of us, you'll have a, you'll have a good time. We'll be able to cobble something together. Yeah. We'll eat and talk and eat and talk and that'll be it. (laughs) Yeah. Like what's better? Like this is the best thing. That's what life's about. Well, Brian, thank you so much. Everybody go check out Brian's book lot. I of course will link to that and everything we talked about today in the show notes. Brian, thank you for being here. And thank you so much for having me on. Of course. And you guys will see you in the stacks. That does it for us today. Thank you guys so much for listening to the short stacks. Thank you to Brian Washington for being our guest. You can find all of his social media accounts through the links in our show notes. And thank you to Ashley Garland at Riverhead. To help support the stacks and earn awesome perks, go to patreon.com slash the stacks or make one-time contributions at paypal.me slash the stacks pod. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This episode of the short stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas.